Hi guys, Andrew Dowling here, Mitch Kurtz, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Ultimate Podcast. Make sure to hit like and subscribe to stay up to date with all that we have coming. All things Ultimate? Yeah, that too. Okay. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Old Man Podcast. My name is Andrew Dowling. <laughs> with me as always, Mitch Kurtz, who I can see his face is beaming on this lovely morning in Melbourne. Our guest is joining us from Sydney today. We're going to hit a topic that we've been very excited to talk about for some time, but it's particularly topical at the moment um, in light of the TGA's recent down scheduling decision with respect to psilocybin um, and also MDMA. It is co-founder of Silo, Mr. Sam Bannister, joining us from Sydney. How are you, Sam? Yeah, really well, Andrew. Yeah, great to see you both. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I imagine your phone has been running a little bit hot over this last little while since that decision came down. It seemed to kind of come out of the blue. I remember the last time the TGA was contemplating a down schedule decision. There was a whole lot of fanfare and lead up to it. And then they disappointed everyone, bit of an anti-climax. And then on this occasion, I, I was actually at a, at a wedding and um, someone just showed me a little news grab about it. And I was just thinking, goodness me, that's just come out of nowhere seemingly, but you probably had your finger on the pulse and, and knew that it was coming. No, I think, I think everyone was, everyone that I've spoken to from, you know, researchers in the space through to clinicians and people sort of more on the advocacy side, I think everyone was, was completely shocked by this. So mm. you, had, you had the TGA um, essentially opposing a rescheduling request and then they, you know, well, they, they stalled on it for a little bit, decided to seek additional information through that expert committee, took that advice on board, which basically said um, there's not enough evidence for sort of broad benefit, but also not much evidence of harm, which is not, not the worst position to be in. Um, and on the basis of that report, decided anyway to maintain the, the S9 position, which is, is fine um, for a number of very good reasons. But yeah, then to do a backflip on it, you know, months months later, um, I think it kind of shocked everyone quite a bit. Well, it, I imagine it's good news for Silo. I, a lot of people probably listening um, won't know about Silo and other, I guess, early companies that are that are in the psychedelic medicine space. So maybe if you can take us through your your background um, and a little bit about Silo and and how you fell into this space. Yeah, yeah, sure. So. I'm a medicinal chemist by training, so I got my, my PhD here in Australia, and I was always really interested in, in drug development, um, particularly uh, in the in the brain sciences, neuroscience, um, so psychiatry and neurology. Um, I, I went to postdoc at Stanford for a little bit, and, and did uh, you know learned a whole bunch of work there as you you do different techniques um, in sort of radio chemistry, animal models of disease, a little bit of structural biology with a Nobel laureate there, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then then got really involved in the more sort of commercial end of drug development from academia. Um, and, and had some work spin out into a company there called Tranquis, which was focused on treating ALS. So I, I came back to Australia in, in 2018, um, you know, with all this sort of knowledge and exposure um, to join a, a philanthropic initiative here, the, the Lambert Initiative, which I'm guessing some of your um, listeners will be familiar with. And, and there my role was sort of to head the medicinal chemistry efforts, you know, develop interesting new molecules based on the, the biology of cannabis, compounds found in cannabis, um, and, and develop new drugs for epilepsy and other things. So I uh, was doing that for a number of years and, and done a lot of really good science, built out a bit of a team there and, and had a lot of fun working with the Lambert. Um, and then sort of right as my position there was wrapping up, um, met this really interesting guy, um, Josh Isman, who was a sort of repeat founder in the tech space. He was super interested in, in mental health and psychedelics. 
Um, I, I just lost a friend to suicide earlier that year and it just seemed like a, a very natural sort of career pivot. I've been watching um, a lot of the clinical trials, the larger clinical trials run by Compass and others. Um, and it seemed like psychedelics, you know, this wasn't sort of some fringe area of science. This was, you know, an area that is actually offering benefit in a, um, in a very serious clinical way. Very interesting. Uh, that's, yeah, I mean, it's quite a journey. Speaking about um, psilocybin and, and MDMA being a natural kind of progression for, for where you're at, How, what, what's your kind of outlook on on where this is going? I, I know we're going to be talking mostly about what's just been legalized, but I'm curious to see what you think the, the future of, um, you know, alternative medicines, let's say, could look like to, to include, you know, would it, could you see, for example, LSD or, or, or other medicines coming on board in the future beyond where we're just kind of coming to at the moment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One one of these things, um, our, our comms officer, um, Dr. Lara Bacchetti, she uses this phrase sort of back to the future when describing the psychedelic medicine field because mm. um, there is, you know, there has been a huge amount of medical interest in all of these substances. So in various sort of cultural context obviously um, psilocybin containing fungi have been used for millennia as well as other psychoactive plants um, but in the western world you know the sort of discovery of lsd which is semi-synthetic uh, the first psychedelic to be discovered by the west um, that was rolled out by sandals as a psychiatric medicine they didn't quite know what to do with it but they were manufacturing tons of it, it had been given to sort of thousands of patients around the world um, to psychiatrists themselves hundreds of research papers have been written on the potential promise of this um, it was being used to treat everything from sort of recidivism to alcoholism, to all sorts of other indications. Uh, and, you know, we kind of forget that this was a really um, serious area of sort of medicinal pursuit until it was shuttered by prohibition and, and the um, sort of Nixon war on drugs. And mm. that was that was largely, you know, it was largely political and cultural. You had a whole bunch of people in, in the US at the time not wanting to be conscripted into the Vietnam War, deciding that instead they sort of drop out of society, you know, not going to mortgage and be conscripted, but instead maybe join these alternative communities and cultures. And, and that's a pretty politically a pretty destabilizing thing when you're, um, you know, trying to run a country that's, that's waging war in other parts of the world. So, yeah, I think a lot of the promise of these medicines has been sort of forgotten as, as prohibition has stamped out research. Um, and if you speak to people who were re doing research at the time, I've met some psychiatrists who are very old now who were, who were dosing human patients in Australia with LSD. Mm. That, that research basically shuttered overnight. It was really like, you know, whatever you're holding, this material needs to be returned or destroyed by the end of the week. And, you know, all this research is coming to a halt. So, so I sort of view it as these being substances that did have medicinal use that was sort of temporarily banned for a period. And now we're just sort of returning to this to exploration of the, the medicinal properties of a lot of these compounds. Yeah, we sometimes joke. <clears throat> Sorry, I just want to hear about the actual compounds themselves. Like there's, we, everyone I think will have, heard at least in the last few weeks about psilocybin but there's is it psilocin can, can you maybe talk to us about other fungi compounds that may have a therapeutic effect on on people yeah sure so so psilocybin is the the primary compound that people think of with magic mushrooms it's actually um, a prodrug so, so for people who don't know what a prodrug is um, it is a form of a drug that's not active in itself um, but is often generated to be, uh, you know, more compatible with, with the human body in various ways. But in the body, it's it's metabolized to an active substance. So um, psilocybin is the phosphate ester of the active substance, which is psilocin. Um, and then in the mushroom, you have, because of the biosynthetic pathways involved, you have a whole host of other things related to these. So these are all broadly in the class of tryptamines. Um, and the tryptamine skeleton 
can have a number of different pendant groups. So in the case of psilocin, it's a hydroxy at the, the four position. Um, you know, serotonin, which is a key neurotransmitter in our brains, that is very closely related, has that hydroxy group move one position around and is missing a couple of methyl groups. So the, the reason these drugs have any effect at all is because they're very close to chemicals that exist in our body for, for doing various uh, signaling processes. Um, so also in the mushrooms, you've got sort of various quaternary ammonium species. Um, you know, you have things like baocystin, norbaocystin, um, and a lot of these other compounds, there are lower levels than psilocybin and psilocin. So they're, they're the two sort of primary alkaloids of importance. Um, but there are other substances in there. I think some of these have been shown to have um, not particularly potent, but uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitory activity. So some of the enzymes that break down some of these compounds. Um, so that there are definitely other bioactive substances in the mushrooms themselves. We often just don't know a huge amount about them in terms of their uh, precise pharmacology. Uh, and especially not in a, a living system, you know, an animal model or a, a human system. So then I'm just curious about the idea. I mean, in cannabis, we talk about, you know, strains and how you have indica dominant strains, sativa dominant strains, and loosely this is used as a dichotomy to determine what type of, but the, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't tell you that much to be completely honest. Um, I'm just curious how many, I guess, mushroom species are there that we can say are kind of, you know, unique genetics or that, that we work, that you'd work with. And, and is there a, an effort on the part of scientists working in this field to say, well, you know what, this, this is all very unscientific trying to determine the therapeutic efficacy of pairing this species to treat this condition. Why don't we try and isolate the, the psilocybin compound from the mushroom so that we can at least just dose that as an individual molecule. Like what does that landscape look like from your scientific perspective? So I'm, I'm a bit more of a reductionist maybe than, than some of your listeners. And I, I have worked at a very deep level of science in both the cannabis space and the psychedelic space. Um, I, I used to get a bit frustrated in cannabis by all this talk of sort of entourage and, and strains and, and really, <laughs> yeah. We, I should I should fully disclose we've had Ethan Russo um, I, um, on the other guy. <laughs> Ethan Russo, who's a big proponent of this sort of terpene hypothesis, who also runs a company selling terpenes, you know, which to me is <laughs> a bit suspicious. Um, yeah, yeah, he's, he's a great guy. But uh, yeah, I, have, I, I do have some issue with um, unsubstantiated claims broadly in science. So one of the issues in, in the, the entourage kind of field broadly is that obviously there's different cannabis morphologies for different um, cultivars. They produce different terpene profiles. And in some cases, different levels of cannabinoids. And my basic argument is that unless I see some data, um, you know, running counter to that, that none of those things actually mean anything in terms of subjective effect, really, in a meaningful way beyond sort of human expectancy bias. Is um, is in terms of human expectancy bias? It, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of people we we see in cannabis don't really have an expectation per se, but they will report different um, effects from different strains. Is that is that something that you would challenge? A, a little bit, only because I haven't seen much much data to uh, expectancy. Expectancy is not always conscious either. This is the other thing to realize. If you have strains with two different scents, for example, because of the terpene profile, you have associations there historically, sort of um, sensory and, and sort of um, other contextual cues that let you know what to expect maybe mm -hmm. and, and i'd say the same thing is true with it happens with alcohol even right if you get home late on a friday night and you have a glass of wine and you just kind of wind down for the week you wouldn't expect that that wine you know would have a different effect because of the nature of the grapes or anything compared to a you know glass of wine that you have on a saturday night gearing up to go for a big night out somewhere 
So, so all these other factors are, are hugely important. I'd say it has more to do with the, the individual than, than the substance itself. Probably. But 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 certain certain alcohols will give one person, say, heartburn and not to another, for example. Yeah, yeah. F- physiological responses, sure. I'd, I'd agree that's possible. Um, and that's that's more to do with just, you know, the nature of, of the mix itself, the blend. Um, but that's with, you know, that's essentially at a food level of a substance. You know, you're eating hundreds of grams of alcohol with tens of grams of ethanol in it. So it's not, it's not a perfect analogy. My, my issue with the cannabis space is that you don't really, for any of these cannabinoids individually, you don't see, uh, you don't see data suggesting that they have the sort of activities that's described in a way that's, that's really meaningful physiologically. Um, I, I don't want to get too far off track on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Only because you derailed my question, Mitch. Sorry, I, we, I want to, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> I want to hear about whether or not, sorry, to we, just jump we, back. Yeah, yeah. Isolates in psychedelic medicine. Is yeah. that a thing? We, we, we could spend hours on the entourage thing and I have a lot of <laughs> in, informed opinions and I'm also, I'm a skeptic, but also open to discussion. I love discussing the topic. And, and just as a tale actually on that, I'm pretty sure it still is treated as the entourage effect hypothesis. So it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's there to be tested. I don't know how, you know, anyway. I say, I say this as someone who has, has gone looking at a, a very molecular level and, and beyond. Um, so, so with, with psychedelics, the interesting thing with psilocybin mushrooms, and this is why I like to, I, I hope people think that I'm a, a, a skeptic and not a naysayer, because of this sort of MAOI activity that I mentioned for some of these other minor alkaloids, there's the very real possibility that you get PK type interactions. So, so pharmacokinetic interactions where one substance is changing your metabolic enzymes and therefore affecting the experience based on um, the amount of psilocybin in the mushroom. So beyond that, there's, there, there is confirmed differences in, um, in amounts of psilocybin in mushrooms. So actually our native um, psilocybe subaeruginosa is one of the most um, potent species in the world. Um, you know, it, it has a substantially higher amount of psilocybin than psilocybin cubensis, which was... Um, you know, likely to have been introduced here at some point. It's one that grows in sort of cow dung and it's the one that's most commonly cultivated. So there's, I think there's more than 100 species of mushroom that produce psilocybin in some level. Some of them are very low, almost trace, mm. and others are, you know, sort of viable for commercial production and for humans to, to use. Um, psilocybin cubensis is by far the most common commercial strain, uh, commercial species, sorry, that's grown. And as a result, that, that species itself has many cultivars, like in cannabis. And largely, these change a little bit in terms of um, alkaloid content. But because that's, as with cannabis, that's massively environmentally driven, you can grow the same cultivar in two different environments and get very different alkaloid levels. But it really seems to uh, pertain most to the morphology of the mushroom, its general sort of, um, you know, observable structural properties. And if you want to have a, a great guest on who's really, really deep into the genetics of this and gives an amazing talk on it, there's a, a guy named um, Dr. Alistair McTaggart, who's up at UQ. He's, he's out in the wild with a government-funded grant um, looking for genetic evidence of other fungal species in Australia that are native that might be capable of producing psilocybin. And they've had some interesting leads from sort of Kakadu National Park area and, and elsewhere. So, wow. Uh, yeah. Has he got, is it fair to say he's got the coolest job in Australia? I mean, that sounds incredible. It's, it's pretty great. He's a, he's a very funny, like very interesting guy, great scientist. And yeah, d- definitely recommend getting him on at some point to discuss the, the genetics a bit more. Yeah, totally. Is the, um, and so to kind of, so, so you're looking at this particular species that, produces high content of, of, of psilocybin is what would then be the process of stripping the mushroom down so that you just actually extract an isolate of psilocybin from that? Is, is that something that you look to do or is it sufficient to just dry mushroom, crush it into a powder, put it in a capsule? Um, this is the form that I imagine some people 
who have participated in clinical trials, whether formally or informally amongst friends, may have consumed psychedelic mushrooms? So, so there are all, all of the above options possible, right? You can definitely, you can extract psilocybin from fungal material, like you can do plant um, extraction from cannabis raw material to get bioactives. So that's absolutely something that can happen. Um, I'd argue it's probably more effort than it's worth when the mushrooms are, you know, apart from a little bit of chitin and stuff, they're more or less digestible by humans. We don't have any trouble getting the psilocybin out of the mushrooms themselves. And and I think for the most part in places like Oregon and Colorado, where you've got these sort of um, medicalization or legalization ballot initiatives proceeding, I think that's the form it will take, much like, um, you know, some of the really high grade Dutch cannabis operations for, for medicinal use. You'll have more or less operations that are managed by the state. Um, or sort of audited by the state that allow you to grow high quality mushrooms as long as you can show they you know are, are of a certain purity and quality so i think that is absolutely going to be a model that's, that's used very broadly in a number of places and then on the medical side i think it's far more common because of the requirements of medical regulators that you'll just have the active pharmaceutical ingredient in various forms so this will be psilocybin that's produced synthetically you know in, in a chemical lab the same way um, any of our anti-retroviral anti -viral drugs are made for, for COVID or anything else um, and the reason that's done is because it's just very cost effective. So um, the USONA Institute has published a, a multi-kilogram scale synthesis um, in an open access journal, so anyone can use it, of, of GMP psilocybin. And it's in terms of cost per dose, this is a drug that's taken about 25 milligrams. If you can manufacture a few kilos of it, you know, not too expensively, that's still a very inexpensive substance compared to actually if, even just growing the mushrooms that are quite easy to grow it drying them, powdering them. It's probably just easier on scale to produce this synthetically. And, and that's definitely the method that will be rolled out for most clinical trials and, and eventually through uh, any kind of you know, commercial clinic network. I think. Just curious. Um, and it's, this is probably a more basic point, but there's, there's quite a few um, listeners that sometimes we know on, on cannabis, they can still get confused between like CBD and hemp seed oil. I know we see, um, you know, things out there at the moment like at your local grocer that's like lion's mane extract and this kind of stuff are you able to just explain the difference between you know obviously psychoactively active uh, psychoactive mushrooms and what you might see on on the shelves out at uh out at woolies <laughs> yes yeah, so, so medicinal like we're a bit of um I guess Australia is not a particularly uh, mycophilic society. You know, we, we fall into the general category of mycophobic, meaning that people are kind of a bit scared of mushrooms. And if you speak to um, people like Jim uh, Jim Fuller, who's a mycologist from Fable, the food company, like we, we eat way too few mushrooms compared to mm. places like Russia and elsewhere where, where there is a lot of um, foraging activity and people are very comfortable with mushrooms. So a lot of these products that you're talking about, I mean, psychoactive fungi, uh, one of these hundreds of species of psilocybin containing mushrooms that I mentioned before. There's also a very long history of traditional use of other kinds of mushrooms with medicinal properties. So mm. um, for, for those people that are watching The Last of Us at the moment, this idea of like a cordyceps fungus that grows in a human and takes over your brain and um, becomes a kind of zombie epidemic, not not strictly true nor very likely, but that is actually based on a, a cordyceps species, many cordyceps species that parasitize a, a moth um, that has a, a larval stage in the ground and you know spoilates from there those particular mushrooms have a long history of use in chinese traditional medicine for example like lion's mane is another one that's got a long history of medicinal use so products that, that you can find in supermarkets are, are bioactive in that they're likely to contain extracts of mushrooms with you know interesting sort of medicinal compounds but they're not necessarily psychoactive so they don't contain psilocybin they're sort of uh, extracts of other interesting medicinal compounds that happen to be found in fungus and, and should be treated more or less like any other supplement that you 
take a multivitamin or anything else based on your understanding of it's not like the not like the spinach we have at woolies which was apparently recalled because it was <laughs> in a magic mushroom field um which is interesting yeah. I, I mean what you're saying is true like I, I remember growing up and and you know being told you, you just don't eat mushrooms in the wild because you know if you're not if you don't know what they are it, it's actually it can be a dangerous exercise um, that's, that's absolutely true. So if you're, I, I've been foraging um, with people who are experts in this field out of curiosity, you know, um, obviously I would never, never pick a psilocybe subaruginosa mushrooms that'd be illegal in New South Wales, but you can go out and you can find them growing right next to very deadly Gallerina species. So if you don't know what you're doing for that particular species, because you need multiple points of identification because of the habitat that they grow in and the fact that you find deadly species of mushrooms there, I'd say it would be pretty foolhardy to go out and attempt to pick something that you can't very, you know, confidently identify as one species or another. So I think that's where a lot of this fear comes from. Yeah. Um, and every now and again, you, I think I'm trying to remember the specifics, but does the New um, South Wales government let you pick the deadly one though? Is that? <laughs> oh, a a absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you can pick whatever deadly mushrooms you want. Just, just not the, uh, not the submergent. <laughs> just not the fun ones. Yeah. yeah. So, so so, so there was a case uh, a little while back, and I'm trying to remember the details. I could so don't quote me on a date or location, but I think it was a fine dining restaurant in, in Canberra where a couple of people ended up getting very serious liver toxicity and dying. And it turned out this this restaurant had bought some like exotic gourmet mushrooms from a forager who'd accidentally picked a deadly species of amanita or something and not identified it quite correctly. So like the, the risks are very real. It doesn't happen very often, you know. Um, mushroom deaths from you know for culinary reasons are pretty rare, but yeah, it's, it's definitely like anything else, I mean, you wouldn't go out and eat a berry that you didn't, you know, fully know the, the sort of properties of either. It's, I think it's just very sensible yeah. that if you don't understand, yeah. you know, foods or medicines in your environment, you probably shouldn't be putting them in your mouth. Although cannabis might be an exception to this rule, um, <laughs> given toxicity. Um, oh, like, no. you know. Yeah, but don't don't smoke something that looks like cannabis, yeah, but you exactly. don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, if you happen to have a, a Japanese maple related species that was extremely toxic you know and, and you, you were likely to mistake it you probably yep. wouldn't be running around picking cannabis but we're, we're totally. lucky that at least in australia um you know cannabis is introduced here it's only sort of it native to central asia so it's introduced almost everywhere in the environment there's often not many many other things that really look like it it's pretty you come across a, a thousand cannabis plants in the wild it's pretty obvious what's going on there you know yeah it's totally. hard, it's, it's hard to, to mistake the wrong cannabis plant as well when you're in yeah. somebody's um you know, subterranean basement out in the uh, the hinterlands as well. It just seems to be so isolated in in that um, in that bunker. Yeah, what yeah. what about um? Well, I actually just while we're talking about uh, mushroom safety, the TGA has seemingly made this decision, but there's still no guidance around. Like, it, for example, TGO ninety three, the safety and quality standard for for medicinal cannabis. Has the TGA given any sort of guidance around, you know, mushrooms that is to be supplied that, you know, for psychedelic purposes, what safety standards they need to meet? Uh, do we have any daylight on any of that? I, I absolutely cannot comment on that because I haven't looked into that, to be honest, at, at this point, yeah. where, because of the nature of my work, we're very focused on the sort of more pharmaceutical end of things. Um, I, I haven't looked into it, but I assume... Um, there will be sort of guidance there from places like Oregon are definitely doing that. They're, they're setting up as they have done for cannabis, various standards. Um, I'm not aware of, of what the TGA is, is doing at this point, but if their plan is to allow uh, actual fungal material to be used um, in various uh, medical ways, then I assume it'll, it'll follow the same pathway as cannabis generally and, you know, just the details will change.
Yeah. And so I, I know your research is, um, well, you, you've indicated that you, you've done obviously a lot of research on psilocybin. Does MDMA, are there any any research activities on foot or planned with respect to MDMA? Uh, in Australia, you mean? Yeah, and, and even with silo. Uh, right. So, so we're, we're not focused on, on MDMA uh, or, or that sort of class of compounds pharmacologically at all. Um, I know that Amiria uh, is, is looking at a number of sort of antactogen-inspired compounds. Um, and there's a company run by uh, CSO is Matt Baggett in the US called Tactogen, who's sort of also working broadly on that class. So there are definitely people looking at sort of um, safer or more efficacious versions of MDMA is, is the ultimate goal. Um, so that's definitely an area that's going work that's going on privately. Um, and in Australia, I know um, Steve Bright um, over at Edith Co. And I think he's running an MDMA, a small MDMA trial um, in, in PTSD. Uh, but yeah, not, it's, there's not as much MDMA activity here as there is psilocybin. Clinically. Okay. So, I mean, so in terms of, because there will be um, listeners that are thinking, okay, great, this decision's been made. How far away is it? Everyone's gone through the prolonged process with regard to accessing medical cannabis. I think in the first year that, that cannabis was was legalized in Australia, there were only, you know, a handful of special access scheme applications that were accepted and, you know, so preceded a deluge of um, applications and, and, you know, doctors wishing to become authorized prescribers. I'm envisaging based on that experience several years before people uh before it's really mainstreamed for people to be going to a clinic and having supervised psychedelic um assisted medicine um you know psychedelic assisted therapy with with these medicines so with your i guess having a, a much clearer view on on these things are you seeing the same thing or do you think it might happen a bit faster than that no, I, I think it's too early to, for anyone to say, you know, myself or anyone else. And I think I think you're uh, you're absolutely insightful there, Andrew, on the, the cannabis as sort of a proxy. So um, I, I think people are expecting that on July 1, you know, you're going to be able to go to your psychiatrist and, and set up a session and next week you'll be getting treated for PTSD. And I think uh, based on the, the, you know, the cannabis data you mentioned, and I know, I know Reese Cohen tracks this in a lot of detail with respect to the number of um, SASB approvals. You know, you can you can use that sort of as a proxy measure. It was a very long time after the law was reformed before we started seeing broader rollout, and I think this will absolutely be the same. Uh, it might be even slower unless there's you know dramatically more sort of public opposition. And the reason for that is that cannabis uh, was a take-home medicine. So once the pathways are established, you know, there's a lot of sort of public will to get things moving. But you know, you have a, a framework where someone can go be prescribed a medicine in a, a sort of controlled way and take it home to use it. This this has additional challenges because not only do you need an authorized prescriber who's the psychiatrist, um, it has to be, it, it, remember, it's only psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression and MDMA for PTSD. So it's very condition-specific. Um, it's in conjunction with an approved therapy. So you're going to need the therapist who can actually roll out that treatment. Um, it's not a take-home medicine. So you're going to need sites where this can actually be administered safely. So you have sort of additional hurdles that didn't really exist for cannabis. You know, it's, it's you can take it home and use that medicine yourself, more or less in the comfort of your own home. And that's, that's yeah. not going to be the case here. Also, uh, did I read correctly that you will need two psychiatrists to review the the actual, I guess, whether it's applicable for that patient? It's not going to be like this is going to be an, much more arduous than, than cannabis, even if cannabis did take a long time. Like I, I think that a lot of people who a lot of GPs, a lot of healthcare professionals who have studied 
um, psilocybin, let's say, uh, are not psychiatrists. Um, so, you know, they're, they're very gung-ho on alternative medicine, um, psychedelic medicine, but they're not necessarily from a psychiatric or from a psychiatrist background. So, um, yeah, I, I concur with that. I think we're going to see a much slower uptake on this one. Unfortunately, fortunately, however you want to view it, but, um, but definitely that double psychiatrist, um, hurdle is going to be, is going to present some problems. You're going to get very highly specialized outfits that are doing this, um, you know, in a, in a way that that won't be like, oh yeah, give a telehealth call, get your cannabis medicine. Uh, I, I I think there's always a way. And the thing that I'm <laughs> what I'm envisaging is you have a couple of doctors that do Friday and Saturday night only at home consults. So they come to you. You've got you that ticks the two psychiatrist box that you were just referencing with. Uh, it has to be in a medical facility, like a medical kind of environment, but. How do you then explain GPs that do home visits? Well, that doesn't have to be t- take place in a medical, you know, clinically relevant environment. That's what I'm saying. I, I think you could potentially, anyway. Oh, you just build, and, build, build a studio at the house. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what's the definition of a medical facility? You know, it's like, this is what I mean. That there's a lot of additional restrictions here, and I'm sure yeah. people will find ways to work within within those, maybe debatably around them, depending on who you ask. Yeah, there'll absolutely be ways to do it um but yeah my, my basic point is that there just are a huge number of additional restrictions that didn't exist here for cannabis and even that was pretty slow to get going really after the law was reformed so i think i you know i i'm optimistic that these medicines can be made available uh you know in a way that's that minimizes risk to patients that hopefully is really beneficial to patients i'm very optimistic about that because there's certainly no shortage of people you know hitting me up on twitter and by email saying they're sort of at the end of the line and they're, they're looking for some direction in terms of trial availability but you know we do want to balance the benefits with the risks that's what any good sort of medical regulator should be it should be doing and, and i think in this particular space that's why the tone is a little bit more sort of conservative and i think as a result it'll be a little bit slower to be deployed so yeah, yeah. do we know if do we know if anyone's actually had access like lawful access yet it's only been a week <laughs> um i i haven't uh haven't done any calling around to find out but i i'd, I'd be very surprised so you know yeah. the, the step we know what the steps are so like the first step is like who who else beyond the psychiatrists who are prescribing for the current um special access trials that are happening you know who else has been made an authorized prescriber like that's the first step right so like hopefully someone by by foi or otherwise can work out who's actually able to you know to prescribe these things that's the first step is getting more psychiatrists who can prescribe so is is an ap necessary or can you do sasb applications um, I, I'm not actually sure. I believe AP is necessary for the, the S8 rescheduling, definitely. Right, right, okay. I, I believe um, psychiatrists are involved in the prescription to the administering psychologists who are, who are the therapists in the current clinical trials. Who's who's defined the requirements to become an AP? Uh, I, I assume this would be the, the TGA or maybe the colleges. I actually haven't looked at that. Level yeah, it's detail, probably but... possibly NIM or something like that. Yeah, I know um, there is the role of, yeah, of an ethics committee obviously is part of that authorized prescriber um, process. But yeah, I suppose the thing that I, when we talk about all these barriers to access and I remember just shaking my head so often in the early days of, of medical cannabis, when you really saw people, I mean, this idea of, well, you have to be treatment resistant. Well, what if, what if you're on an SSRI or some, you know, psychedelic, medicine or you know sorry psychotic medicine that, that somebody just hands out to you like candy at your gp you get a script for lexapro or something at the moment you tell them oh, I'm ha- i had a bad day at work 
you know, let's say that that actually assists you in terms of just managing symptoms, but doesn't actually go to root cause or, or anything that, that underlies your mental illness. Does that mean that effectively, because that masks the symptoms that you wouldn't fall into the category of being treatment resistant? That's a, it's an interesting point. I just only just thought that maybe if, if that's a specific technical definition and requirement, you know, maybe see an uptick in people seeking SSRI, multiple SSRI treatments to in order to become treatment resistant. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> an interesting consequence. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Treatment resistant, I, I forget what the specific definition is that's it's used in Australia, but it's, it's definitely that you've uh, failed to respond to several medicines. I forget what the exact number is um, for depression. So, yeah, I, I think... I mean, I'd also, sort of, as a devil's advocate, argue that if, if you're treating the symptoms of the condition, which is more or less how we diagnose a lot of these things, unfortunately, for, for better or for worse, um, if you're getting response from Lexapro or some other SSRI, then then that would be considered remission, right? And, and of course, that's not to say that that's the best treatment for people with depression, because we know there's emotional flattening, we know there's a lot of different side effects. Um, but I think th these treatments will become more broadly available. And for people who are for any reason, maybe not resistant to the SSRIs, but have other sort of seriously limiting adverse effects or side effects to those drugs, this provides sort of an alternative um, treatment path. Yeah. Well, I think we've just kind of accepted as as part of mainstream medicine, this idea that, you know, you could just be on something on a particular medication indefinitely without actually trying to really cure whatever that condition is. Um, oh, for and sure. Yeah, that's that's why the promise of these psychedelic medicines is is just so enormous when you really hear about people just yeah just living with debilitating PTSD and, and other conditions, um, major depression for for years on end, and they finally turn a corner with with psychedelic medicines. Um, yeah, and and they're able to actually give up their daily medication that they were on previously. I know that won't be the case for everyone. So in the spirit of a, a fair and balanced discussion, you know, we need to temper the promise of these medicines with, with that reality that, yeah, they won't necessarily work for everyone, but there is a lot of, a lot of hope out there that wasn't previously um, even able to be considered in Australia. I mean, yeah. is that how you see it as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a, a massive, um, yeah, I'm trying to find the right word here, but I'm not a, you know, completely unreserved advocate for these things like you know i'm, I'm a very evidence-based person I like psychonaut yeah i'm not a not an absolute psychonaut <laughs> in your breakfast cereal every day but um I, I think like with all medicines we just need to balance the, the sort of risks and benefits and in this case i think based on the data that we've seen so far for some of these very serious conditions the, the data are extremely promising and it warrants you know additional trials and really thinking about how to structure these things and the risks the risks are real in, in treatment resistant depression or major depressive disorders ptsd even um th there are some people who end up in a worse position after participating in these trials and that might be that um you know they have this sort of catalytic experience that's it's very challenging to work through and they don't necessarily get the right sort of integration support afterwards and there are reports of these if you look at sort of patient testimonies and other things some people actually do end up worse after these trials um, they're also some of the most seriously depressed patients in the world uh, and it's it's absolutely appropriate for any medicine you know to be a panacea otherwise we fully expect that some people won't respond as well as others um, or may even get worse so i think just balancing expectations and really considering the benefits versus the risks is, is just the main thing here that's a really pragmatic approach it's, they're not going to be perfect for everyone and they're also you know these super dangerous drugs it's, it's just finding that middle ground absolutely um 
we'll wrap up because we know you're you're a busy man and you would have been very busy over this last bit. I've just got one final one for you. I mean, if for example, five years from now we have a you know, I guess a growing number of clinics that are offering people access to to psychedelic medicines, do you think one day we might see things like DMT or the toad five MEO DMT being rolled out in these clinics? Or is that just is that pipe dreams on Andrew's part and I should just keep those to myself? No, I, I think it's very likely. So really the, the reason people are doing so many trials with psilocybin compared to LSD, for example, even though you know, there's an interesting study out of um, out of Basel from uh, Matthias Lecti's group showing that apart from the duration of action in people with limited psychedelic experience, um, subjectively, people actually can't really tell two apart, which this is why I find like the, the salt counter to the entourage hypothesis so interesting. You give people LSD and, and psilocybin and ask them two hours in what they got blinded and they can't really tell you. Like That's how similar some of these drugs are and how profound they can have on consciousness so a lot of the work's going with psilocybin because it's just more practical right now and seems to have some therapeutic benefit there are also trials going on right now with dmt and with 5-meo dmt by various startups um, some of the dmt trials are showing efficacy in, in depression which is one of the indications and sort of experts in the field were unsure if uh because of the sort of uh you know trajectory of the dmt experience it might not be as useful as a psilocybin for, for treating depression but so far the trials data is looking quite promising in these small studies um, and it's also dmt has also been used for stroke recovery on the basis of um, some really promising data from a rat model so there's a, a human trial going on now looking at that so i think this is really just the beginning you're going to see a couple of drugs rolled out because the clinical evidence is at a standard where, where it needs to be but really you know people are just starting to to really reinvestigate this entire arena of medicines that's been more or less forbidden for you know in terms of research for the past 40 50 years well we're so grateful that you and others uh championing the cause of pulling out those books off the shelf, dusting them off and um, really picking up where we left off in, uh, in the, where we wrapped up in the sixties. So credit to you and the team um, at, at silo. And, and I know there are, there are others as well who are really um, pushing to take this forward. And ultimately with the goal of, of at least helping some Australians um, get, get access to, to these medicines, which will hopefully have profound impacts on, on their lives um and just a, a sort of a tail end to that is just to say that yeah in victoria we had a whole royal commission into our, our mental health system that i know was was watched closely by other states and yeah we we have so many um, people in this country that, that that could be potentially assisted by this so um and that would just be wonderful for our public health system um, in terms of what it has to deal with on an annual basis so yeah, I'm very much along for the ride. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll be watching what Silo and others do in this space very closely. So Sam, thank you so much for joining us. I'm, I'm sure we'll, um, we'll we'll chat to you at some stage in the future as, as everything begins to unfold. Absolutely. Yeah, th thanks so much for the for the conversation, uh, Andrew and Mitch. And thanks for having me on. Oh. Yeah, great to have a chat and a, a great way to start the day with some really, you know, sort of invigorating discussion. Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, until next time, Sam, take care. We'll speak soon. See you soon. All right. Thanks, Sam. Cheers. Hey, guys. Andrew Dowling here and Mitch Kurtz. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Ultimate Podcast. Make sure to hit like and subscribe because we've got heaps more content coming out and it's really fun and great and we love it all. Also very good. <laughs>